Brian McClanahan Show, episode 447. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClane Again Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same Tata read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I do have a course coming out in June, probably near the end of the month. So you're going to want to be registered at McClanahan Academy. Again, free of charge, and you'll get a great coupon on that course. I've got, gosh, near 20 courses there now. So you're going to want to head over to McClanahan Academy. It's a way to keep this podcast free of charge. It's a way to support the podcast, and you get great content when you do it. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can buy one of my products with my logo on it. You can get a book plate by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. If you want my autograph of one of my books, you can purchase one of my books. All kinds of ways to support the show. Of course, you can also share this podcast around on social media. You can rate it where you get your podcast. You can let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we expand the audience. That's how we get more people interested in what we're doing on this program. And of course, you, the listeners, are very important to this. And this is going to be a listener-generated episode. I'd like to have those. I'd like to have episodes. You send me material, and I go on out there and decide I'll, I'll do a, an episode on that. Remember, it has to be something I can talk about over about 20 to 40 minutes. It can't just be something that would be a limited, you know, where it's a question that I could answer in about two or three minutes. I mean, it has to be something I can really focus on with a broader context. So keep that in mind when you send me those show requests. I can't often do something that's very narrow. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. And secession's back in the news, right? So this is Think Locally, Act Locally episode. We're talking about secession because Oregon, some counties in Oregon, have decided they want to join Idaho. And when this happened, I got uh, at least a dozen, if not more, people sending me this link. And so all listeners of the program, and again, I appreciate it, I saw that Bob Elder, who wrote the, new, the latest book on Calhoun, uh, posted something about this and said, Secession 2.0. Now, this really isn't Secession 2.0. It's nothing of the sort. In fact, I'm going to talk about this in a broader context and really look at it in, in a historical perspective in that we're going to look at this from an 1850s perspective as well as a 2021 perspective. Because I think that's really what's at stake here if we want to talk about decentralization, and not just that, power in the United States. Because this is what D.C. statehood was all about. It's about power. Now, that bill appears to be dead, and I said it was going to be. I don't know. It could be revived. There could be a real push to have D.C. come in the Union. And the whole point of D.C. entering the Union as a state, or the state of, what they call it, the Washington-Douglas Commonwealth, the whole point of that, will be to add two U.S. senators so that the Democrats had control of the Senate. I mean, this is what adding states is all about. 
It's what it's always been about. You go back to the 1850s, adding states, added two more senators, and of course gave you control of the Senate of the United States, which is the key, honestly, to the entire general government. It always has been. The United States Senate, during ratification, was the entire key to the general government. It was the part of the Congress that all the proponents of the document said kept the federal government a real federal government. It's what allowed the states to have control of the entire system because they were a check on the House, they're a check on the executive, and they're a check on the judicial branch. All three branches because of their advice and consent role. And, of course, their concurrent role in getting any legislation passed through the Congress. So the Senate was the key to the entire government. And we see that even right now. This is how important the Senate is. This is why you see people like Ian Milheiser, the progressive writer at um, Vox now. I guess he's at Vox. One of those sites. I don't know. But he keeps uh, talking about abolishing the Senate. Well, because he understands the Senate is the real check on the entire system. It is the anti-democratic check, and it's by design to be an anti-democratic check on the, on the entire system. Now, the senators, of course, used to be elected by the state legislatures. I know people that, uh, of course, I've long said we need to get rid of the 17th Amendment. And there's people that say, well, that wouldn't really change anything because even before the 17th Amendment was passed, you had the legislatures canvassing the population to determine who they should select. That was true in some states. But it still gave the states the ability to perhaps corral their senators and have a role in determining what kind of legislation we were going to see out of the Congress. In fact, there was some discussion about states having the ability to recall their senators, to not send their senators. But this is where you get into some of those parts of the Constitution that allow the, that allow the general government to control elections, So, except for choosing senators. I mean, this is, this is interesting. So the states, of course, had a major role in this government. And this is why there's some discussion about D.C. coming in the Union as a state. But we get to the current topic, and that's Oregon deciding they want to, or some counties in Oregon wanting to leave Oregon and join Idaho. So is this really secession, or is this something else? I'm going to read a piece on it, and we'll talk about this in, in uh, greater detail. This is from... KTLA, I don't know exactly where that is. LA, this is from Los Angeles, KTLA. Five more rural counties in Oregon have voted to support efforts to leave Oregon and become part of Idaho instead. The five counties, Baker, Grant, Lake, Malheur, and Sherman, are the latest to back an idea put forth to Idaho lawmakers by a group called Move Oregon's Border for a Greater Idaho. The Greater Idaho Movement, as the organization also refers to itself, has been pushing a plan to move Idaho's border so that it encompasses more conservative counties in Oregon, Northern California, and a southeastern Washington area, something that would create the nation's third largest state. Now, let me stop there for a second. So what's going on here is you have people in Idaho, and, and these three states, four states actually, because you have Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and California, interested in creating this mega-conservative state. And the question is, is this really a good idea to create a mega-state? Because that's what we're doing here. Instead of going smaller, we're going larger. Instead of actually having these states break off and form their own states, which would be better 
for representation. It would be better for self-determination. They want to become part of another state. And here's a quote from this group. We promote the idea of creating a greater, bigger, and stronger Idaho so that conservative counties can become a part of a red state, the Greater Idaho, Idaho Organization writes on its website. Well, I can understand Idaho's point here because Idaho, of course, would gain this. They would actually have, if you look at the map of what this would do, they would have they would have California or Pacific Coast real estate, right? They would get some real estate out of this on the coast. So this would be better for Idaho. I mean, it's a huge swath of territory they're looking to take over. Some of it would have been Oregon territory. Some of it would have been California territory on the on the Pacific coast. So Idaho would gain from that. Now, we have to understand something about Idaho. If you look at a map of Idaho, a huge chunk of the state is actually owned by the general government. The western states are overrun by federal property. And this is a real question. I mean, should, should we have all that federal, federally controlled property? Should that be more open to private control? Well, I would, I would say the private part of it would be better. Uh, though, of course, the conservationists would say, if you do that, it's gonna just, you're just going to have all these loggers out there, miners, and everything's going to ruin it. Well, I point to Callaway Gardens in Georgia to say that's not always the case. In fact, if you have people that are interested in conservation, but managed conservation where you have humans being able to use this stuff, I mean, that's, that's a better, it's a win-win situation. Continuing with the piece, President Joe Biden easily won Washington, Oregon, and California in November, while President Donald Trump carried Idaho with 64%. This is the part where California is so important when it comes to the popular vote. The Democrats control California so much now that uh, they tip the scales of the popular vote. And if you take California out of the equation in the 2020 election, I think that Trump, I can't remember the exact numbers, he's either very close to winning or he is actually winning the popular vote if you pull California out of the equation. I think uh, Trump lost by about a million votes. Again, we can. I know people get very upset when I talk about this because Trump actually didn't lose and these kind of things. But I'm just going to go with the numbers that we were given, right? So if we look at the numbers we're given, then Trump lost by around a million votes. Take California out of the equation, I think he wins by, I can't remember what the number is, but it's he wins, right? So California is becoming the key to the entire United States if you look at the, pop, the simple popular vote. So the question is, do we want to have California running the United States. I mean, this is what Kamala Harris represents. It's what Nancy Pelosi represents. Do we want these people running the United States? Well, of course. I mean, most conservatives would say no. Libertarians would say no. Nobody wants that. Look at California. It's awful. Now, there's people I know that live in California, and they love it. But a lot of people don't. They're moving out of there in, in large numbers. There's also people moving into California. So California is an interesting place. I think that... Um, when you talk about the impact of California on the broader union, I mean, this is something interesting. What should really be happening is a decentralization of California, but I'll get into that in a minute. The five counties in support of the idea joined two others, Jefferson and Union, who previously voted to support of, in support of the movement, which ideally hopes to flip around three-quarters of Oregon by area to Idaho. 
These voters do not actually determine whether a county can leave the state, but rather are intended to put pressure on lawmakers to discuss the idea. When the plan was presented to the Idaho legislature in April, however, both Democratic and Republican lawmakers expressed skepticism. How is it being received right now by the state of Oregon, asked Republican Representative Ben Adams when the idea was pitched in April. How hard would they, fight, would they be fighting to make it not happen? Most states don't like to lose the resources to their neighbors. Well, I would say practically all states don't lose resources to their neighbors. I mean, this would be, this would be the whole key to everything. But I'll get into that in a minute when I get through the piece. Democratic Senator Michelle Stennant further noted that the minimum wage in Oregon, eleven twenty-five, is a whole $4 more than in Idaho, meaning that counties who flip would need to be agreeable to a pay cut for hourly workers. Oh, my goodness. The president of Greater Idaho Organization, meanwhile, is still confident that parts of Oregon want out of Oregon. Well, of course. If Oregon really believes in liberal values, such as self-determination, is that a liberal value? Is self-determination a liberal value? Or is that simply an American value? The legislature won't hold our counties captive against our wills, said McCarter in a statement obtained by the Oregonian. If we're allowed to vote for which government officials we want, we should be allowed to vote for which government we want as well. Well, I mean, that is a point of self-determination, right? And this is where you get into going down to the local level. This is think locally, act locally. On his website, the Greater Idaho Movement has ideally proposed that Idaho accept dozens of Oregon counties, along with a handful of counties in Northern California and southeastern Washington, so that the Idaho border extends to the Pacific Ocean. This, as the group explained on a fact page, seemed more plausible than flipping Oregon red or being granted its own state entirely. As the group also acknowledges, the strategy is a long shot as the Democratic-controlled Oregon legislature, the Idaho legislature, and Congress would ultimately need to approve. Greater Idaho's efforts, however, not entirely new. Counties in California have voiced support to establish the state of Jefferson. More recently, another bill introduced by Minnesota State Rep. Jeremy Munson has proposed allowing Minnesota counties to request approval to be excluded from the state and possibly join South Dakota. Now, this is interesting. Back in the 1990s, and I've said this before, I remember having a conversation with a couple of people. One was Clyde Wilson, and we were talking about you know what, what could happen uh, with the United States and what, what path should people be following to try to rein in the central government. This was in the 90s. And I brought up nullification, and of course that was laughed at. Now Clyde didn't, but the other guys laughed at it. Said, that's silly, it's never worked. And Clyde said, no, no, very seriously, it's always worked. It's always worked every time it's been tried. It's always worked. It was always worked when it's been done forcefully, but you have to be able to stand behind it. Now, secession is something else. As I talk about in my class, secession, an American story, secession is something that's as American as apple pie, right? I mean, if you want to say that phrase. Americans love secession. Look, the United States would not be here if not for secession. In 1776, we had a secession movement from the British Empire over conflict about the Constitution. The imperial structure was at stake here. What kind of imperial government were we going to have? And of course, the American colonists, the imperial product that did not allow the states to have representation in the parliament was a violation of the rights of Englishmen because 
these things have been codified since 1215. They had control of their own local government. The way that they thought of these things was that, look, the states or the colonies here, the colonies, which they now called states, would control all their domestic concerns. And then you would have, of course, the central authority control trade and defense, international trade and defense. And that is essentially the federal model that we adopted for the U.S. Constitution. The states would control all their domestic concerns, and then the federal government would control interstate commerce, international commerce, and, of course, defending the states from invasion. That was important. Everything else that was left to the states. But when you look at this idea of secession that's being pitched now, we're talking about taking some parts of the state and giving it to another state. This is, again, not new. I mean, they bring up a couple things. It also was brought up in 19, I think, 63, somewhere in there, when uh, the state of Alabama tried to annex West Florida, which would is often called the Redneck Riviera, uh, Lower Alabama, L.A., they call it sometimes. But you would have had the Panhandle of Florida annexed to the state of Alabama. And at one point, even back in the 19th century, this almost happened. That was almost part of Alabama. So Florida would have been a much smaller state than it is now. That panhandle would have been part of Alabama. It would have given Alabama a large swath of the Gulf Coast, the Gulf of Mexico. We're talking about places like Panama City and Destin and Pensacola. All of that would have then been part of Alabama. Beautiful part of the state, by the way. But the question then becomes, what kind of, should we be talking about this kind of secession? Is this really even secession? It's not. Now, when you look at Calhoun's speech on Michigan, and when you talk about self-determination, a state can only be created by the people thereof, not by the general government. Now, in this particular case, the piece is correct. They would need permission from Oregon, Idaho, and the Congress to create the state. Now, I think the, the real hang-up is going to be Oregon and the Congress particularly the Congress is currently composed. Because why would the Congress? They might be agreeable if it's not going to tr- create a balance of power issue in the Senate. But here is where people on the right could start making waves in this way. You want to add the Washington-Douglas Commonwealth? Okay. Let's create a scenario then where we can add a red state to balance it out. So you get... Uh, you take a, a blue state and you carve out part of a carve of that state, and then you say if you create a red state out of that, which gives us two senators and another member of the House or two members of the House, whatever it is, then we will be certainly willing to talk about a blue state, <clears throat> blue state coming in the union, which would keep the balance of power. There, right? And of course, you're talking about small is beautiful. You're looking at smaller and smaller states. I often bring this up, and I have on this podcast many times before, but the current state I live in has about 4 million people. That is the entire population of the United States in 1790. It really is too large to be a functioning singular state, even at this level, right? 4 million people. If you really want to have self-determination and control your own destiny as a member of that government, well, then you would need to think about having a smaller and smaller state. This is things, you know, Kirkpatrick Sale has been working on, Don Livingston works on, the size of states and what, the, what is the essential and, of course, ideal size of a state. Americans used to talk about this stuff. 
Americans used to actually have a very open mind about these things before we were clouded by all the power politics. And of course, that's what we've gotten into. This is where we have some real issues in America, and it's all about power politics. Power politics. Why do the Democrats want to have D.C., the Washington Douglas Commonwealth? They get to control the Senate. They get two more senators, and if that was the case right now, you'd have 52-50. They wouldn't need Kamala Harris for a tie-breaking vote. They'd have two senators. They could do whatever they wanted every single time. This is why they want it, and this is why it's even being brought up at this particular point. The question of that is, of course, with all the legal questions around that, why don't they just try to push for Puerto Rican admission? Puerto Rico is admitted to the Union as a state, which would give them the exact same thing. The reason they don't is because, of course, Puerto Rico kind of likes their status as a non-state. They get the benefits of being part of the United States, and they don't really have to have the burdens of being a state. There are some things that they don't have to do. So this is the important part of the entire discussion. It's about power. So why don't we start looking? I mean, if we're going to have the Washington Douglas Commonwealth, why doesn't Texas just say, okay, well, let's split Texas up into five states. Let's create five states of Texas. Or why don't we start talking about states booting out their metropolitan areas? Like if the rest of Georgia doesn't really want Atlanta, we'll just boot it out and make it its own state. We should just start talking, talking about having city-states and then states. But you have to do it. You have to have a commitment to it from the blue and the red states to do this. In reality, what we should be talking about are creating more states in the United States, not splitting off and joining another state. Because what would be the, the tangible advantage for these people? You could say, well, they're going to have a government that is uh, more representative of them because it's a red state, it's so-called red state, right? But at the end of the day, what are they going to gain from it? They get to be part of a bigger conglomeration. They lose some self-determination in that way because they don't have as much role. I mean, look, Oregon, California. California is awful on representative ratio. I can't remember what the ratio is in Oregon. It's not great. But they would probably not be any better in Idaho. So maybe they could create a state and have... Uh, a, a different kind of political system there. They get to write their own constitution. Maybe they come up with a parliamentary system or something else. As long as it's Republican, it really doesn't matter. You don't have to have a governor like every other state does. We didn't have to have that particular system. You could have a different kind of system. You could do all kinds of things. This is where Americans could actually be creative if there was a push to have more states. Why do we have to have 50? Why can't we have 100? Why can't we have 100 states? Why couldn't we have 200 members of the Senate and have 100 states in the Union? Why couldn't we subdivide more? Would that not make sense in terms of real representative government? These are the things we should be talking about in America, not all the nonsense that goes on most of the time. If we really want representative government, if we really want self-determination, if these are things we find important, then we should be talking about breaking these states up into smaller and smaller units. How does this happen? Well, I love the fact these Oregon counties are deciding they want to take the step because this is a beautiful development. The very fact that these counties, not from a state legislature, it's not somebody in the Oregon state legislature saying, you know what, uh, let's, let's, have a, 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 these state, let's have these counties break off. No, no. These are people at the county level. This is local action saying, we don't want to be part of your government any longer. You do not represent us. Now, 
Counties, of course, are creations, they're, they're corporate entities of the state. So therefore, they have no real power. But the people have power. And I'll give you an example again, a historical example of where the counties actually did have some control of the state. And that was in Virginia. In the state of Virginia, the central government there would, at times, this is back in the 18th century, would, uh, and this is when it was a colony as well, at certain points, they would, they would pass laws and then the counties would ignore them. The counties would just say no. This was nullification. This would also happen in Massachusetts in some ways. You go back and you look at the Stamp Act crisis and you look at how that was opposed in the colony of Massachusetts. Well, the local courts just refused to prosecute anybody for violating the Stamp Act. And that was in direct violation of what the governor of Massachusetts wanted to do. So you have these counties saying no. And we're seeing this in some levels with sheriffs and other things saying, you know, we're just not going to enforce that law. That law might have been passed, but I'm not going to enforce it here. And what's going to happen? I mean, how, what are the states going to do? Are they going to arrest all these people? So the fact is that you have these counties, the people of the counties, this is direct popular action saying we no longer want to be part of your state. What they really should be doing is saying we don't want to be part of Oregon at all, and we don't want to be part of Idaho either. We want to be part of our own state. We want to make a state, and they start agitating for that. And they set up their own structure. This is what they could do. See, under the whole idea where the people make the state, the state doesn't make itself. The people have to make the state. They set up their own, their own de facto government. They elect people to call it the state of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. State of Western Oregon, right? State of Eastern Oregon, whatever you want to call it. They set up their own government. They say we are now the de facto government of this area. And they start operating as such. Now, this is going to run into a legal issue. And, of course, then you're going to get into You have to have some guts to be able to do this because you're going to start running into problems with the state of Oregon. And the Constitution is very clear. States cannot be created without in, in existing states without the consent of the state. This also shows, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that the states are sovereign in this system. Congress can't create states. Only the states can. And only the people of the states can. But a state has to consent to have a state carved out of it. So constitutionally, I mean, this is, this is legally, but the state would have to consent. And I think this is where they're saying, hey, we're just trying to put pressure on the government here. We're trying to put pressure on the central authority to say that we want our own way. We want to make our own way. This is self-determination at the highest level. But these are political issues, and I think this is interesting stuff. And none of these things would have been happening, I think, 20 or 30 years ago. 30 years ago, early 90s, nobody would be talking about this. But here we are in 2021, and people are actually talking about these things now. It's amazing how much has changed in around 30 years. 25 years when I had that conversation. But 30 years, nobody was really interested in this type of activity. I mean, 1963, you had some discussion in in Florida, in Alabama, but for the most part, I mean, you had some discussion about it, I think, in Illinois as well at one point. I mean, there's always been Michigan, there's always been some discussion about certain parts of these states breaking off, and it doesn't go anywhere because the states block it. But if enough people, this is where people have to be persuaded, if enough people decide, and you have to persuade the lefties, this is in their best interest too, because they can start advocating for these things. They can start agitating for this type of activity, in their own states, hey, 
We're in a conservative state. We're in a red state. We'd like to break free from your state. And if we had enough people that would actually agree with these things, well, this would be great. Because you could create a much more responsive state and local government and a Congress that really represents all the people. Right? I mean, it, it does represent the people of the states at that point because you have real representatives, real representation in every state. And the Senate would still be the key. The Senate is always the key because it's always really about power. When you start talking about states, well, we're back to the 1850s again. Why was there all that hand-wringing over adding states to the Union in the 1850s? Because it meant 1820s to the 1850s because it meant power. It meant control of political economy. That's really what it meant more than anything else. It all goes back to Hamilton and the Hamiltonian system. This was the important thing. All right. That's my thoughts on this, quote-unquote, secession 2.0, which it really isn't. It's more like the 1850s 2.0 and the expansion of power and how we wrestle and how we wrangle with these things in the modern federal system. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.